Take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to talk about a a deep portion of Scripture. I told you that sometimes Hebrews got a little deep. Today's going to be one of those that we're going to dive into a, a deep portion. And here's the reality. When you walk through books of the Bible, there are times you can't go around or you just have to go through these deeper, more difficult passages of Scripture. In fact... This is one of those passages of scripture that at first reading goes against something that I firmly believe. And so as a, as a minister of the gospel, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I have to deal with that, look through that, figure out what's being said. Um, and we'll talk about that in a minute because of specifically what it talks about. But I want to start today with a story that I read from a pastor. Um, pastor that was talking about a basketball game that he had at a local community um, center. He went to play basketball one day and it was just one of those things when guys were picking up uh, one-on-one playing to 21 and um, he's a pretty good basketball player but not great and they, he kind of found some guys of his same skill level and they were rotating in. If you've ever been around that you know what that's like. A winter stays on, somebody new rotates in um, and so he rotated into the court and he said that he started to play against a guy that he had never played against. He had seen him at the rec center, but he never played against him. It's just that it finally came up that he was there playing. And he said, now this guy, just to let you know, was quite a character. Okay? He said that he was... Um, he said that he had tattoos all over his body. He said, in fact, he had so many tattoos on his body, it was hard to determine even like skin color or um, who he was. Like, you just couldn't even tell. It was all over his face, all over his body. He said he had piercings. And to use the word of this pastor, he said, it looked like he had fallen headfirst into a tackle box. He had piercings everywhere. He said he cursed like a sailor and he boasted continually about all the women he had been with. He said, it was not the kind of guy you think, man, this is the guy I hope my daughter brings home someday. He said, as they were playing the game, this pastor felt compelled to share Christ with him. And so, as they're playing in the midst of the points, he starts to share his story a little bit about how he came to faith in Christ. And about three sentences in, the guy grabbed the basketball and held it for a minute. And he said, dude, are you trying to witness to me? And he was like, yeah. The pastor said, That's awesome. No one's tried to do that to me in years. He said, but dude, you're wasting your time. It's really cool. Like, I grew up in a Baptist church. And when I was like 13, I asked Jesus to come into my heart at camp. And for the next couple of years, man, I was on fire for God. Like, I went to church all the time. Like, I did the whole true love waits thing and all that stuff. I memorized verses. I even went on a mission trip. I even told other people how to become Christians. But he said, about two years after that, man, I met this girl. And she became everything to me. One thing led to another, and to another girl, and then to another girl, and I just began to really question all that stuff. And so I decided later that I didn't believe in God anymore. So I don't go to church anymore, and I don't pray, and I do whatever I want to do. Like, I just don't believe that stuff anymore. He said, but, but, but he said, you want to know the really awesome thing about the whole thing? He said, the, grew up I, the church I grew up in was Southern Baptist. And they taught this thing called eternal security. And he said that, you know what secur- eternal security is? He goes, are you Baptist? And this guy is a Baptist pastor. And he was like, um, I didn't really know what to say at that moment. He said, because the cool thing is, they tell you, once you're saved, you're always saved. He said, so that means that my salvation at 13 still holds, even if I don't believe in God anymore. Once saved, always saved, right, man? I mean, that means even if you're right, dude, even if you're right and God exists and Jesus is the only way to heaven, I'm safe. 
Either way, it works out great for me because I got that salvation thing when I was 13 and now I get to live however I want to. So what do you say to somebody like that? It says he prayed to receive Christ in his heart, that he had indications early on that he was following Christ. He went on mission trips. He led people to Jesus. He had fruit in his life immediately. He got excited about Jesus or busy for him, whatever you want to say. He believes once saved, always saved. But now he doesn't believe in God anymore at all, he tells you. That's what we're going to talk about today. Here's what I want to tell you on the front end, all right? This is my disclaimer on the front end. Two things. First of all, we're going to go deep today, okay? This is not going to be a fluffy day where I tell you four stories that are cute about my kids, all right? This is going to be deeper kind of teaching, right? We're going to go deeper into Scripture because it's an important topic. But And I want to give seriousness to the topic as it is. Students that are here, just consider this your wake-up call that school's in session soon, all right? Like, we're going to go a little deeper today. Those of you, the adults that hadn't turned on the school brain for a while, turn it on, all right? We're going to go a little deeper. And here's what I want you to know from the very beginning, okay? There has not been a day in my life when I have not been attached to a Southern Baptist church, okay? I mean, I grew up Southern, not all of you in here did, and that's, um, that's great, well, it depends on what you view of it is. But for me, for me, it's been great to be Southern Baptist all my life. My grandparents were leaders in the Southern Baptist Church. My mom and dad took me to church from when I was little. When I was in college, um, I went to Southern Baptist Church. I went to a Southern Baptist college. I went to a Southern Baptist seminary. I've been to two Southern Baptist seminaries. And one of the, one of the foundational elements of Southern Baptist doctrine and theology to which I subscribe and believe is that once you are truly Truly saved in Jesus Christ, you are always saved. So I believe that, okay? I want you to know that from the beginning. Because we're going to walk through some waters that are going to get a little testy. But I want you to know from the very beginning, the foundational elements is, I believe that. So I believe, if you're in this room today, and you have had a salvation experience with Jesus, you have truly asked for and received the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, then you are saved for eternity, and it never has to be an issue in your mind again about whether or not you are saved. And we're going to look at a passage of scripture today that talks about that subject. But I want to give you a couple of other scripture passages that help to firm up my belief in that. Now, and I'll give you kind of a summary statement at the end. And then we're going to move into Hebrews chapter 6. But I believe that because I believe that's what the Bible teaches. I mean, John 6, 37 through 39 says, all that the Father gives me. Now, what does the word all mean? What does the word everyone mean? It means all, everyone. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the ones who comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then it says this, finishing up those verses. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up at the last day. And so he says, all the Father has given me, all of them come, all that come are saved, none are lost. John 10, verses 27 and 28 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. The point here that Jesus says is they're mine, I collect them. The Father gives them to me, I give them, we we celebrate that, and then I hold on to them. When, When my... 
kids were younger and still with the youngest ones, we play games sometimes where you know you would hide something in your hand, right? And you would you would put it out there and they'd pick which hand and then you oh it's not in that one, it's over here or whatever. But sometimes um they would pick the hand that had it in there and I would act like I didn't want them to open it. And they would grab my fingers and start to pull. And here's the thing. It didn't matter how hard Ava or Maddie pulled when they were kids. They weren't opening my hand because I'm simply stronger than they are. Now, I don't play that game with Eli anymore because he can rip my hand open, all right? Like, it's not as fun when they can do that. And so only someone that's stronger than me could rip open my hand. And there is no one stronger than our God. So it says when he holds them, he has them. They're in his hand. Romans 8, 29, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He says, listen, if you're part of the family, he's going to conform us into the Son. He's called us. He's going to justify us. He's going to glorify us. No one's going to get lost along the way. Now, here's my basic theological reason for believing in eternal security of the believer. Once saved, always saved. The basic theological thing that drives me to that point is that my salvation is not dependent upon me gaining it or keeping it. Because if my salvation is dependent upon me gaining it or keeping it, I'm not getting it and I couldn't hold it. It is based upon God's Choosing to die for me, to save me, and to justify me, and then for him to hold on to me. But then you hear this. You don't have to open yet. You don't have to look there. I just want you to hear it, and then we'll break it down a little bit. The writer of Hebrews says, For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding it up to contempt. It's impossible for those who, having heard it, having understood it, and then fall away to be returned. You're like, oh, okay, wait a minute. What do we do with that? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Let's talk about it for a second. We have to understand where Hebrews 6 is. Hebrews 6 is in the book of Hebrews. That's right, shocker there, right? It's in the book of Hebrews. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we know we talked about the book of Hebrews. It was written to a group of people that were Jewish converts to Christianity. A congregation of people that were coming together out of the Jewish community that were now followers of Jesus Christ. And what is happening here is the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know who it is, is saying to them, Jesus is better than anything else. Don't give up. Keep following Jesus. They were beginning to wonder because of persecution, because things weren't happening like they liked them in their life. They said, is Jesus worth it is he worth all that i've given up all that i've done all that's gone on in my life and they say jesus is absolutely worth it keep pressing on keep going keep following and then you get to chapter five and he's building this case that jesus is better than the angels jesus is better than moses jesus is better than joshua and he gets to chapter five and he decides he's going to take it even deeper than moses and joshua and he pulls up a name that my guess is if you hadn't been reading hebrews that you hadn't thought about in a long time and some of you still may not have a clue who this is he brings up the name melchizedek and says there 
in chapter 5, you, you got your Bibles open, you can see this. In chapter 5, in verse 10, and he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And you're like, according to who? Like Melchizedek's only mentioned in two verses in the Old Testament. He's a priest and a king that Abraham meets after conquering an enemy. And then David mentions in his writing in Psalm 110 that he would be a king, a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. That's the only two mentions we have of the guy in the whole Old Testament. And this author of Hebrews is going to bring him up to prove something about Jesus. But he stops and says, wait, 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 wait a minute. I got a lot to tell you about that dude and a lot to tell you about how Jesus relates to Melchizedek. But I can't explain it to you right now because you're too lazy to understand it. That's, that's not me. That's what he says. Right? He said, you need to be taught the basic principles of God's word again. You hadn't moved on. And he starts making this comparison of milk and steak and says, listen, you're like a 12-year-old that's still nursing. You need to grow up. In today's terminology, he might not use milk and steak. He might use the term of extended adolescence and says, some of you need to get out the house. Right? Y'all know about extended adolescence, right? That... Particularly guys, but both male and female are staying with their parents till they're like 30, 31 now. Y'all remember sermon? Some of y'all were here a few weeks ago. We talked about sometimes you got to be that bird and mm, knock them out of the nest. Like, get on up out of here, right? Like now. He said, so you need to grow up. Get going. Move on in your faith. Chapter 6, verse 1, he's still talking about that. Like it gets on his mind, this writer, and he can't leave it for a second. He says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. Now he's not saying we're going to leave Christ. He's saying, listen, it's time to grow up. It's time to move to some deeper stuff. It's time to get over the basics of the faith. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Faith in God. Teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We'll do this if God permits. He says, listen, I don't want to have to talk to you again and again and again about the gospel in its basic form. Saying I shouldn't have to tell you again about what it means to follow Jesus in the most basic terms. And he gives some things that he's taught him about, about repentance, faith, about being baptized. About being sent out for work. Laying on of hands was sending out for work. About the resurrection that one day Christ is coming back. We're going to be raised from the dead. And that when he comes back there will be judgment for good and for bad. And he says I want to move on past that stuff. And we will if God permits. What he says is listen. He's writing to a church. And he says by now you ought to have this stuff down. But he also realizes that in that congregation of people that he's writing to, there are probably people that don't or that haven't responded to what they know. Every year um, for the past few years, I've gone to kids camp, Central Kid, with our kids. Now, mainly because I've had kids going. That's always a fun, exciting time to do that. It's a great week. It wears me out. The older I get, the more it wears me out. All right. End up with laryngitis for a week and a half after this year. So. But one of the things I love about Centrikid is it reminds me again of the simplicity of the gospel. This year they, uh, they illustrated it. It was Adventure Awaits. And so um, they illustrated it every day. They had these signposts. Like you would see at camps that say, you know, um, uh, food that way, um, restrooms that way, pool that way, lake that way. 
And every day when you walked in in the morning, it was was that signpost. It had all these kind of things on it. But when you turned it around at night, it had God's plan of salvation on it. I think we got a picture of it. Okay. And so this is the sign that they use. This is actually not. This is from another camp pastor that that used it. And it's five basic points. And it's not really complicated to understand. The five points are, first of all, that God rules. We talked about it just a few minutes ago, that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation, that he created all things, that was created by him, through him, and for him. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that he created us to be in relationship with him. And as God creates, it means that he gets to set the rules. And he reigns supreme. And that we sinned, we messed that up, we chose our own way, we went the way. That was opposite of what God intended. And any time you or I do something God told us not to do, or we don't do something God told us to do, or we even allow our thought life to go into a place where we are dwelling on going against God's word and God's principles, then we sin. And scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none that are righteous, no, not one. That means every one of you in this room today, falling away from God, sinned, Not doing what God has intended for you to do. But God provided. He provided his son Jesus. He sent his son for us. Jesus gave his life on the cross. Jesus gives. And as he gives to us. As he gives his life, his blood, his forgiveness, his salvation to us. We must respond to that message. So that's the basics of the gospel he's talking about. He's saying, listen, some of you in this place, I can't move to the deeper stuff because you haven't got that yet. Now, for some of you in this room, you've accepted Christ. You understand that. You know that. You're living your life in fulfillment of what God's called you to do. And you're ready to move into the deeper things. But for some of you in this room, you need to hear the most basic message there is. And that is that God created you for a relationship with him. You chose to walk away from that. But he has provided a way of salvation. If you will but accept his forgiveness. And so when he talks about in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, about the elementary teachings of Christ, he's saying, I shouldn't have to go over this again and again if you say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. But for some of you, I do. And then in verse 4, he moves to the discussion of the falling away. Verse 4 says, For it is impossible to renew to repentance... Those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word on the powers of the coming age and have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. And as a guy that grew up deeply Southern Baptist, entrenched in my roots, who has been through schooling in Southern Baptist life, that have been taught once saved, always saved, I just have questions that come up when I read that passage. What do you mean fall away? What is he talking about here? And specifically, what does it mean that it's impossible to restore, renew, bring back? I mean, the question goes, who's he talking to here? Is he talking to save people? Because scripture throughout scripture says that once you're saved, he's going to hold on to you. He's going to keep you in his hand. He's going to take care of you. He's going to seal you for the day of redemption. He's going to take care of all of those things. And I firmly believe that scripture does not contradict itself. 
And so you have to ask, okay, so who is he talking to? Is he talking to the saved? Is he talking to the unsaved? Is he talking to believers? Or is he talking to people that haven't yet crossed into that place? Or is he talking to people that may think they are, but they're not? Then you begin to get all convoluted in the head. Insane in the membrane, right? Starts to work its way through and you're like, I don't even know. I don't know what, what I'm seeing here, what I'm thinking here. So here's what I want to do for the rest of this time. And we're going to do this as painlessly as we can do it. I want to answer those questions to the best of my knowledge and let you know. There are lots of interpretations out there and people that would disagree with me. But in my years of study, this is the best that I can interpret what's going on here. And here's what I want you to know is I think the overriding theme of Hebrews when it comes to this issue and to this passage when it comes to this issue. And it is simply this. And that is faith that truly saves is faith that will endure to the end. The faith that saves is the faith that endures to the end. I don't believe this passage teaches that you can lose your salvation But it does teach us something important about the nature of what faith that saves looks like. And I base that upon a couple of things. First of all, the writer is not trying to make a definitive statement in this passage about one person's salvation. He is giving a general pastoral warning to a congregation made up of both genuine and superficial believers. In every congregation in America that is more than 10 or 15 people big, every congregation, there are people that are there that are genuinely saved, genuinely changed. Their heart and their lives have been transformed by the power of the gospel and of Jesus Christ and there are people there that are going through the motions that are caught up in the excitement of the movement and they may even participate externally they may pray they may learn the songs they may get excited about the things of the church they may get baptized they may join a small group they may be a part of Sunday school they may even help on a mission trip somewhere but it doesn't represent a deep embrace of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done And so those words when he talks about in here, and those that have been enlightened, those that have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, he says those are the people that have been around it. They've seen it. They've witnessed it. They've been a part of the congregation. They've been a part of services like we had last week where we hear about the wonders that God is doing, where we see six of our young people baptized behind me, and we celebrate what God is doing, and they're there for that, and they see it, and they see God moving, they see the change in people's lives and yet they themselves haven't responded yet he basically says man if you've he's writing to people and he's saying to this group of people that have not yet accepted what christ is doing he says what more do you need than to see what christ has already done you've been around it you've witnessed it you've seen it you've heard about the fact that the god who created everything, loves you so much that he came down in his son and died on the cross for your sins. What more do you need to see? Listen, if you've seen the glory of Jesus, you've been convinced that this is probably true, only to return in intentionality to your sin and walk away from what Jesus has done, what more could you be done to convince you of Jesus' death and resurrection? We see this in the passage that continues in verse 7. Because in verse 7 he talks about the fact that there's going to be times when this is going to be poured out and it's going to seem like everything's good, but what's going to come up are thorns or thistles. Verse 7 says, For the ground that drinks the rain and often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, 
It is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. He says, listen, if you go out into a patch of ground, how many of you here plant a garden? Anybody here plant a garden? Okay. First service, we had about 45. This service, we got two. That's great. All right. All right. So we're spending our lives in other ways. All right. So, um, but listen, if I went outside, now if I went outside and planted a garden in a place and it didn't grow and weeds grew up, it would probably be something I did. Right. But if somebody that's an experienced gardener goes out to a piece of land, lays it out, does everything they're supposed to do, waters it, sun is where it needs to be, either for again, all that stuff, they get it all together. And instead of growing good crops, it grows some deep and crops, but mostly thorns and thistles, they're going to determine that the ground is not good for growing stuff. Right? He says, listen, there are certain people that you would present the gospel again and again and again and again. That what happens is the rebellion of their heart just won't let the seed take to the soil. And he said, if you understood the gospel, especially if you're convinced it's true, and you are not moved to repentance, there's nothing else that can be done for you. Now, here's where the warning is for those of us that call ourselves believers and a part of a church. He also makes the implication in this passage that if that's true, if Christ has died for our sins, if he has given his life for you and for me, then it doesn't mean that we can have just a little change in our lives or to casually be connected to church or to the Savior. It doesn't, it means it can't be a part of or a portion of or a little bit of. The gospel tells us that what you did was so bad, the punishment you deserved was hell and that Jesus died in your place. He was so loving and glad to die for you. And the response for that is not, I'll give you a little bit of my time. A portion of my life. And so he's given a warning to the entire congregation. Those of you that haven't yet accepted Christ, but those of you that say you have, have you really if it hasn't impacted your life? And what we see in this passage, again, is that the faith that saves is the faith that endures to the end. The Bible teaches, I believe this, That once you have been truly saved, you cannot lose it. But it also teaches that one of the signs of genuine faith is that it endures to the end. I know that sounds like I'm talking out of two sides of my mouth. But it's what scripture teaches. That if it's truly impacted your life, it will last to the end. The book of Hebrews tells us in 3.14 that we have to come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 12.15, see through that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that root of bitterness doesn't spring up and cause trouble and by it become defiled. That bitterness and unforgiveness in someone's heart can kill their faith doesn't mean that they had faith to start with. It means that their faith wasn't genuine. Hebrews 10, 38 through 39 says, My righteous shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere to the end in their souls. I think about it this way. Jesus told the parable of the soils. The farmer goes out, casts the seed, and there was one soil that had just a thin layer of topsoil, and it sprouts up and fruit begins to come, and then the sun comes out, and it dries up everything, and it withers away because the roots weren't deep enough. And that there are people that I've seen in my life that 
have an initial what seems like emotional response and begin to do great things for God, but then the true test of life comes and they wither away. I saw this all the time growing up. I went to, I mentioned I've been to Center Kid. I think I've been to youth camp, kids camp, almost every year of my life since I was 12 years old. In some capacity, in some form, working it, being there, chaperoning it, doing it myself. And you see this at King Camp all the time. Kids get there on Sunday, they leave after church on Sunday, they get there Sunday, they sleep like an hour and 14 minutes on Sunday night. And then Monday night comes and it's a great day and they sleep like 32 minutes on Monday night. And by Thursday, they are just exhausted. Now, the adults are exhausted as well, but we're old enough that our exhaustion gets to the point we finally get like eight hours of sleep one night, and the kids do whatever they want to do all night, all right? I didn't tell you all that, but that ha- all right, just, it happens, okay? And then on Thursday night, last night at camp, the pastor will get up, and he'll tell some emotional story. When I was a kid, one of the popular things to do was talk about a car crash with a bunch of teenagers, and we don't know the salvation of those teenagers, and one of those teenagers was, we know, didn't have a relationship with the Lord. That could be you going home this weekend from camp. And as they're talking about it, people start getting emotional, and friends are looking at each other, and they're like, that could be us. And they put their arms around each other, and somebody remembers the boyfriend that dumped them before they came to the trip, and somebody else remembers the F they forgot to tell their parents about before. Before they came to camp and they put their arms around each other and crying with teenagers is contagious. Then they start crying all over each other and they're huddled up and all of them come down front to the front and they're all going to be missionaries and not date boys till they're 30. And they lock arms and sing Kumbaya going back to the cabins and they all go to sleep, wake up the next morning and it's all gone. Next year, rinse and repeat. I love youth camp. But an initial emotional response at youth camp is not a lifelong following of Jesus Christ. We must admit, as Baptists, that initial emotional response does not guarantee true salvation has happened. Is salvation emotional? Absolutely. Are there moments when emotional things happen when people are converted? Yes. But just saying some words when you're at the height of vulnerability does not mean you have truly accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Even if there's some initial emotional fruit. Standing in front of a group of people and having saying, how many of you here tonight uh, don't want to go to hell? Well, nobody wants to go to hell, right? Like, no. no. All right, then just say these words after me and everything will be good. Pray this prayer with me. Doesn't guarantee that true acceptance of the salvation that has come in Christ has happened. Now, listen to me very clearly, all right? I told you we're going to trudge into some waters here. Listen, if a person truly, from their heart, accepts what Jesus Christ has done, he will not turn them away and salvation happens. I'm just saying that sometimes what we declare as having been a true salvation experience may have been an emotional response that had very little to do with Jesus. He tells us there. I mean, you start thinking, well, what does all this mean? For it is impossible to restore those that have fallen away. You think, well, what does that mean? Okay, so maybe he's talking about those that haven't um, given their, their heart to Christ, right? Maybe those are the ones that fall away. What does it mean you can't come back? Well, obviously he can't mean that those of us that are Christians will never sin or we lose our salvation. Because here's a secret. We all sin. Still. A lot. All the time. It's okay to amen that, all right? It's not okay to point at people, but it's okay to amen that. 
even in scripture, we have people that were following God that fell back into sinful habits. Peter denied Jesus three times in the space of one night. Abraham, who is the writer that Hebrews 6 will use as an example of persevering faith, told people that his wife was his sister and let her go with the guy because he was scared about his own life. And one of Paul's traveling companions, John Mark, abandoned the mission field because it got too difficult. But he's restored. In 1 Corinthians, Paul does this crazy thing where there's a guy in the church that is in a relationship with his stepmom and flaunting it in the church. And he says, get out. But this is what's interesting. He says, kick the guy out. But he says, I mean, we're not talking about this guy had a mistake or this was a stumble. It's Jerry Springer level sin going on there. Right? And he says, the purpose of kicking him out is what? To restore his soul to God. So what does he mean when he says it's impossible? This is my interpretation of what I think. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that our God is gracious beyond what we deserve. That he is the giver of second and third and fourth and fifth and 128th and 2014 chances. But it also says in scripture there comes a point when he allows people that are rejecting him continually and boastfully and arrogantly. That he allows them to have their own way. Genesis says there will come a time when God will not strive with the souls of men. Scripture's clear that at some point he says have it your way. And he lets people go. Now here's what you and I have to understand. First of all, we have no clue who that is. And so we don't ever give up hope on someone who has walked away from the Lord. We don't ever give up hope on people that need Jesus. Secondly, if you're here today and you're wondering if that's you, has God given up on me? Can I tell you something? If you're wondering if God's given up on you, he hasn't given up on you. We continually look in repentance to God and we pray for those around us that need him. So 10 years ago today was one of the most exciting and difficult days in my life. 10 years ago today, I preached for the very first time in this sanctuary. This is my view of a call sermon 10 years ago. It was a great morning, awesome morning. We had a good, good time here and people here decided I could be their pastor, you know. And uh, we ate lunch, and this was the difficult part. I had to go home to Ripley at that time, where I'd pastored for six years. And I had to stand in front of a group of people that had been the first church to give me a chance out of seminary. And I had to tell them that I wasn't going to be their pastor in two weeks. And I had to look out on faces of lives that had been changed, of people that had loved us dearly, still love us, treated us well, gave a 25-year-old kid a shot, and followed and had to tell them, I'm not going to be your pastor. Now, when you do that in a church, generally lots of people come up and they tell you all kinds of sweet things. That's usually not the time they tell you what they're mad about. Okay, they, You come up, we love you. Or, you know, There were some tears that night. But there was one guy there. And I had probably 20 people tell me, because it's a popular thing to tell a pastor when he's leaving. Make, I think they, you know, people think it makes you feel good. They say, hey, I want you to do my funeral. Like, all right, I'm not really in the funeral business. But, okay, if that's really what you want, we'll come back and do that. All right. And I've been gone for 10 years now, and lots of people in Ripley have died, because that happens in places. And I've only gone back and done one funeral. There's a guy named Leon Holt. Some of you heard the story of Leon. I told his story actually Wednesday night. He's just been on my mind this week for some reason. Leon's gone on to be with the Lord. 
Leon came up to me that day, wrapped his arms around me, gave me a hug, and said, you're coming back to do my funeral, and I will be eternally grateful that you were the pastor at this church at this time. When I got to Ripley, Leon was told to me to be the farthest person away from God in the community. He owned a trucking business. Leon had told preachers, don't come talk to me, and he would let you know in colorful terms if you tried. Leon had... uh, Open heart surgery scheduled and our vice chairman of deacons was a friend of Leon's, had been working on him for about 10 years and said, hey, I want you to go talk to Leon. This is an opportunity. Maybe it's right before. It's a scary surgery. They told him he may not come out of it, that it was a very serious thing and said, okay, I went down and this has been, this has been 14 years ago now. And I went down and sat in the hospital room in Memphis, Tennessee and I looked at Leon and I remember asking Leon, Leon, are you good with the Lord? And Leon looked at me and said, I'm as good as I'm going to get. And that didn't mean I've accepted the Lord. That meant I ain't worried about it. I said, all right. I shared the gospel with him. No response. He was cordial to me there. I heard later he said some things that weren't too cordial about me. Um, I left. I heard that because he told me um, later. <laughs> he said, I didn't like you coming that day. I said, well, I'm sorry, Leon. I came. Three days later, I get a call from Leon's wife, Jean. Now, just to tell you, and again, I'm not... Leon, to talk about how far away Leon had been and all that. This was Leon's fourth wife, Jean. Jean says, Leon won't see you again. So I went down. I'm like, I don't, I don't know if he had a bad experience and he's wanting, I don't know what's going on. So I get down there. The look on his face was visibly different. He said, Pastor, I found Jesus. I said, Leon, what happened? He said, well, I was... Uh, I died on the table, flatlined. He said, and people talk about seeing bright lights. I didn't see bright anything. He said, I descended into a darkness worse than I've ever known. He said, in the middle of it, I yelled, Jesus, save me. He said, I need to know what I need to do to get to following Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Leon had to recover. That was like in the late winter. Um, I mean, late, like the year December, November, December, holiday kind of season. By the time he got fully recovered, it was like two weeks from Easter. He says, I want to be baptized on Easter. So Leon Holt, in his late 60s, I baptized on Easter morning. Now, here's the coolest part of the story for me. I'd known Leon for three days when he accepted Christ and had said about um, two paragraphs to him. But sitting in the back corner, the day he was baptized was his mother who had prayed for Leon for 65 years to come to know Jesus. And she just told me at the end, thank you for being a pastor that went and talked to my boy. You know, when you're a mother, you can still call a 67-year-old your boy, right? For talking to my boy, she said, um, I never gave up on him. And what he's saying to these Hebrew followers is, A, if you're following Jesus, he's best keep going. If you're not, what are you waiting on? And if you got people out there that you're praying for, don't give up on them. The message to you and me is the same thing. If you're following Jesus, if you've had a true salvation experience with him, even if, and there will come times in all of our lives when sin will take us away, when enemy will move us away from that central location of following Jesus, what are you waiting on on returning? What more evidence do you need of Christ's love that he's better to return? And to follow. If you have it, if you're here and you don't know, maybe talking about this, you're like, I don't know. They're in fruit or I've just been playing the game. I'm just going through the motions. I don't know if I'm saved or not. If you don't know, why are you waiting to figure it out?
What are you waiting on? And if you've got people in your life that need Jesus, don't give up on them. Don't give up. I love how this passage ends. Because it doesn't end like you would necessarily think it does. Because he gives all these warnings. But in verse 9, he says this. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. He says, I know I'm talking to you, I'm giving these warnings, but for most of you, for the vast majority of those that I'm writing, <coughs> I know you're good. I'm confident of better things. I'm confident that you're saved. For God is not unjust. He is not forget your work. The love you demonstrated for his name, for serving the saints, and by continuing to serve him. We desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. He's saying, I have confidence that you are the ones that have faith that's going to make it to the end. So is once saved, always saved true? Yeah, it is. The question you have to ask yourself is, have I had a salvation experience and has my life been changed by it? You need to inspect the fruit of your life. You need to check how you're following Jesus. Let's pray together.